Welcome to the GovComs podcast, bringing you the latest insights and innovations from experts and thought leaders around the globe in government communication. Now, here is your host, David Pembroke. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to GovComs, the podcast that examines the practice of content communication in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke. Thank you for joining me. Today, we talk about one of my current obsessions, which is about design and the importance of design, not only in the design of services and programs, but visual design and identity and where design is now playing such a critical part in our communications and why we have to be so respectful of design as we think about, as I say, not just the design of programs and services and products and other things, but identity, uh, It is such a visual world that we now live in and we have to bring design practice into the heart of what we do as government communicators. But my guest today is Dan Formosa, who is a consultant in design and design research. He works with creative teams to develop products and services in a wide range of categories. His background is in product design and he has a master's and a PhD in ergonomics and biomechanics. Dan based his career on the idea that design should focus on people, not things. Now, there's a lesson for us all, focusing on people, not things. His work has received numerous design awards, and he's been selected for national and international exhibits. Back in 1997, he was invited to work with the Elliott Noise Studio. Dan was a junior member of the design team that helped IBM to conceive how a computer could possibly fit into a home. From 81 to 90, he worked with Smart Design, a company he established. His work on OXO Good Grips Kitchen Tools became a symbol of product design to work for everyone. The interface he created for XM Sirius established the standard for satellite radio in the US. Dan played a key role in conceiving a thing called Smart Gauge, which was an instrument cluster for Ford, and it was designed to influence driving behaviour and save fuel. It was an innovation for the auto industry at the time. In healthcare, he has rethought products ranging from everyday consumer health items to surgical equipment. In addition, his design work helped create the Masters in Branding program at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. He lectures around the world and writes frequently about design method, and the physical and emotional aspects of design and innovation. In addition to consulting, he's co-founded the 4B Collective, which focuses on design and gender. Dan has also co-authored and illustrated the best-selling book, The Baseball Field Guide, implying principles of information design to explain the intricate rules of Major League Baseball. He joins me from his home a few short miles north of Manhattan. Uh, Dan Formosa, thanks very much for joining me on GovComs. Thanks, David. Happy to be here. Design. Where does it take me back to your journey into design? So obviously there is the professional application, but when did you start sort of thinking about design and the importance of design in the way we live and the way we work and the way we communicate? Well, I've probably got some childhood stories where I have noticed some 
odd things in the world. So it probably dates way back. But when I was in high school, I was uh, tossed a little bit between getting into engineering or getting into art. And that sounds like two diverse topics, but I was into both. And at the very last minute, uh, a teacher suggested that I look at product design, industrial design. And I did. I had never heard of it before, but I looked into some industrial design schools, applied, pulled a portfolio together, uh, and got in. What did you learn in that, you know, that first foray into industrial design? What are some of the things that you learned back then that are the principles and, and laid the foundation for your future work? Well, very interesting. The history of industrial design really did focus on the thing. Uh, on the object and on manufacturing processes and a lot of technical aspects. When I was just emerging from design school and actually all through all through college and design school, I tended to focus more on how products related to the body. You know, how does the hand work and how does the how does how you know how does your body work when you sit or, or stand up or when you hold something. And I was a little more into it, I would say, into the body mechanics and the effect of products and design on people and the environment, probably a little bit more than most, definitely more than was being taught in the school programs at the time. So I was a little bit of an oddball on focusing on people uh, early on. And how, how do you get the best out of observation and and how do you become good at picking up cues that are important because a lot of what we're talking about in in terms of govcoms is the importance of understanding people being empathetic but obviously you know people can tell you one thing but obviously observation is another uh, critically important obviously in design itself but observation really can give you the real the, the truth the real insight so how did you learn to be Uh, an intelligent observer and a sympathetic and an empathetic observer? Well, one thing I would uh, emphasize is that there seems to be a tendency for either design groups or marketing groups or engineering groups to look at a group of people and average them and say, this is generally what people do. And I have always avoided that. I never thought about the average, always thought about the spectrum. And when you think about the spectrum, you need to think about the tallest person and the shortest, shortest person, the fastest and the slowest. You need to look at individuals, not homogenize them as if they are one homogeneous group. So that sounds, uh, that may sound obvious, but it's not that widely practiced. You know, there was always a tendency, especially when I was just coming out of design school, to average people and say, this is our average consumer. This is our average person. And I'd come back and a lot of work goes into averaging those people. And I'd come back and say, well, I don't care about the average person. What I want to know is the spectrum. And I want to know, especially the people at the edges. Hmm. And what, why the people at the edges? Why, why are they of particular interest to you? Well, you'll find a lot of challenges at the edges and you'll find that it's really fertile ground for innovating and understanding real problems, whether you're talking to a novice or an expert, they both have things to tell, you know, and if you're observing them, there, there are things to see when you watch a novice and an expert. The people in the middle, fine, but, you know, the, if you understand the edges, then 
you're kind of covered for the people in the middle. Hmm. What you want to do as well is if you want to include as many people as possible, of course, you've got to look at the edges, you know, ability or disability or inclusion or exclusion is really defined in many cases by design. And it's really defined by designing for those edges. Hmm. So designers, you know, designers, architects, graphic designers have a lot of power in actually enabling or disabling people. In terms of, though, assembling the, the data around the, the spectrum, obviously the averaging helps to simplify and makes it a, a lot easier to, you know, to develop a, uh, a persona uh, or an archetype of, of some sort that perhaps makes, uh, you know, the communicator or the designer's work a little bit easier. But what you're suggesting is the averaging really takes out a lot of the real, real insight and the real value because what you're actually doing is, you know, mashing things together that shouldn't be mashed together. And is that what you're suggesting? Yeah, totally against any form of simplification. You know, the world is complex, and what you really need to do is embrace that complexity. Uh, unfortunately, there's a tendency to make things as simple as possible, and I just don't think that's healthy. That's not the way we're going to understand the world. Mm. Um, but in terms of that, though, that that makes it harder, doesn't it? it might, because what it does is, again, going back to your um, analogy around the spectrum, all of a sudden I have to examine a range of different um, uh, seg segments across that spectrum for me to be able to understand the complexity. So is that where... Uh, you know, machine learning and artificial intelligence is going to start to create some real value because it's going to be able to synthesize the data from those various segments and, and hopefully pull, pull the insights a bit faster than it would if you had to do it uh, just, you know, by traditional methods? Yeah, it certainly can. I mean, you know, we're doing it now by just um, saying complex is okay. Complex is actually what we want. You know, I encourage people, designers to write things down on a giant blackboard, not on PowerPoint or Keynote where you just see one slide at a time because you really don't get a picture of the world by looking at one slide at a time. I really say, let's, let's map out, let's visualize the complexity. Let's look at relationships. Let's look at dependencies and really let's, let's revel in that complexity because we're going to see things. We're going to see patterns that we wouldn't otherwise see. And it's going to spark ideas that we would not otherwise have. So, yeah, I'm all about embracing the complexity and actually living in it because that's the world. You know, that's reality. That's the world. And it really does spark a lot of ideas. Hmm. Okay. So with that, what is, what's some of your advice in terms of just say people are able to try to, you know, join up, um, you know, various stakeholders and, and, and various contextual uh, variables which are uh, impacting on this complexity and they're able to map it in, in some form. What's, a, what's some um, process that you suggestion around that as to how people can manage that complexity and manage through the complexity to try to land on the insight that is valuable? How, how best should people go about that? And do you have any advice about how, how people should go about those uh, discussions? Yeah, a very early form of device is to make sure everyone realizes that questions are okay. 
a lot of times when you start a project or you're trying to come to a solution, it's a tendency for people to jump to an answer. Like, I've got it. I've got it. Here's the, here's the idea. Here's my idea. Here's your idea. Here's my idea. What I really encourage is lots and lots and lots of questions. Because if you're going to innovate, you really have to start by asking questions. I will say, too, that at least the school system in the U.S. and maybe everywhere, we have been a bit brainwashed against asking questions. We're not that good at it. Uh, we're very shy about asking questions. You know, we don't want to be the dumb person in the room or we don't want to be the troublemaker. So I would encourage everyone to be that troublemaker or to ask those questions and ask why, not answer what. And in terms of that, though, so if, you, if you're running a session and you're, you're getting people moving through the, the why – and not forcing people to actually, you know, obviously early in the process, it's not, not it's not about a solution because at this we don't know yet, but we we explore the why. But once we get through that, and and we have been curious and and we've, um, you know, we've been humble enough to be able to expose ourselves to really, you know, expose as many questions as we possibly can. Then then what do we do once we've got this whole once we've got it all out and we've sort of know the sort of the uh, the spectrum of the challenge, how then do we move through that to the next stage? I always like to think in terms of hypotheses and really basic scientific method, which is something that you probably learn in grade school or you know your first science class. But the thought is, you know, make some observations out in the world based on either what you've seen or what you are currently seeing. And then come up with some hypotheses. And then when you have those hypotheses, see if you can prove them or delve into them further. Once you have hypotheses, those hypotheses generate more questions. And really following that method, uh, you know, hopefully that once you start to get creative, you do that just by practice. You know, you just do that automatically. But I find that when I'm talking to design groups, I really need to emphasize that that would be a very highly recommended process. Really think about hypotheses and be, you know, and ask those questions and be very open-minded and think blue sky, especially if you're in a area or category that is really ready for innovation. Hmm. Okay. So again, uh, what, what happens then? So we've been out, so we've, you know, we've, we've mapped the complexity as best as we can. We've then gone out um, to observe in the real world, to, to look at these groups, whoever they may be, uh, to see how they're interacting, to, to see how they're behaving, to see how they're reacting, uh, to see how they're behaving. Then we come back and we, we, we bring that together and, and we join it up into those hypotheses. But then we're going down to a a further layer of questioning of now that we've got a little bit more um, fidelity, a little bit more information. We're now sort of going further into the, the exploration process. At what point do we sort of stop asking questions and start making decisions about um, what, what it is that we've got to do? When, when do we find um, that clarity and to have the confidence to 
to have uh, you know stop the exploration and and start the the actual um, design process. Well, I always have. Well, sorry, the the, ne- the next step of the state of the design process. Yeah, I always have. The, I always think it's important for the design team to be conducting that research as a design team or engineering team is observe making those observations or conducting those research or as they're out in the field, those ideas are starting to flow. So they really start to germinate very early during that research phase. So it really is not a very specific cutoff point, like now the research is over, now we're going to start to come up with some ideas. It really does evolve as that research is taking place. Mm. So it's, I will say also that if you're looking for just one thing to mention that needs to happen in parallel, if you are looking for some innovative solutions or if you are heading for some innovative solutions, you also have to make sure that the company or the corporation or the organization or that you're working for or that you're doing this for is ready for that sort of innovation. Because very often uh, the companies or organizations can be their own worst enemy when it comes to accepting innovative ideas. So I would say uh, things need to happen, a couple of things need to happen in parallel. Okay, but in terms of making an assessment as to whether an organisation is ready or not ready, what are what are some of the key signals that you must have uh, before you you know set out on on this process? Is it um, endorsement from senior leadership? Is it from you know enthusiasm from your team? Is it your immediate supervisor? Where, what are those signals that people should be looking for? Um, to, to, to judge whether or not an organisation is, as we say in Australia, fair dinkum, uh, about embracing new ideas and in innovation? Well, it helps to take a lot of the key people along for the ride. So involve them or keep them posted. Don't finish the research and then say, ta-da, here's what we found out. Keep them informed throughout. Uh, let them know this is an innovation uh, process. And also make sure that the means of evaluation, the means of evaluating ideas are really geared towards innovative ideas, not for incremental changes. So very often there are what, what we'll call gates inside a company or organization where they need to now evaluate whether they want to invest in this idea, right, in this project. And very often those methods of evaluation are not geared, they they tend to be looking out the back window. They're not necessarily geared for forward thinking ideas. Mm. So so you're suggesting then though that those gates and that um, evaluation has to be done up front, that we are going to look at this particular process through the lens of a full, as you say, the, the, the front windscreen as opposed to the back windscreen and we're going to do uh, you know, some sort of design around an evaluation process that is going to be forward-looking. Yeah, think about some of the most innovative uh, ideas that we've seen in even the last decade or so, like Airbnb or driverless cars. Or look at smartphones. Look, I have a phone now with no buttons. What do you think? Uh, not really popular ideas when you first hear them. Um, so they really need to be played out, prototyped, proven out. Mm, it really is, this, you know, innovation isn't easy, which is why it doesn't happen very often. Uh, but the payoff is certainly worthwhile. And if you're going to innovate, you have to stick with it. You have to have some 
confidence. You have to be prepared to be uncomfortable. As a matter of fact, an entire organization may have to prepare to be uncomfortable. It's not an easy thing to do. Mm. But again, that I mean, the innovation is, is the innovation itself may be the, the easiest part of it. Yeah. No, indeed. And what's your advice then around those cultural elements and how how can you be a genuine innovation champion? Obviously, you know, part of your uh, advice is making sure that you have senior leadership and you don't just sell them the idea to start with and then turn up a little bit later and say, oh, by the way, here it is. So engaging and keeping informed and keeping the enthusiasm um, at that leadership level, uh, perhaps even in engaging them uh, to give their views around what might happen so they feel as a participant. But what other ways, um, as, you, as you say, like it's a difficult, time-consuming uh, process. And so maintaining momentum is obviously a key thing. How else might we do that as we, as we move through a, 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 you know, a, an innovative process? Well, one way to do it is to plan for small successes. You know, everyone likes success. So look at the path of least resistance. Look for places where maybe you can slip something under the radar scope and get it approved or get it done or at least get it prototyped. Do some testing, do some, you know, proof of concept. And just think about those Maybe I'll call them baby steps. Look at look for places where you can succeed, even if you succeed small, because boy, people will just start to latch on any form of success and gain more confidence, and maybe you'll be able to uh, to slip yourself in a little more easily, slip those innovative ideas in a little more easily. And do you suggest that with those small wins that you should be broadcasting those far and wide to say, look, hey, look, Look, you know, we've started and, and we're already seeing results and, and trying to build that momentum through that, you know, collective effort that this isn't just the innovation team as such. Um, this notion that innovation really should belong to an organization and that everyone should feel like they're part of the innovation team, not just the, you know, the, 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 the central core, you know, design innovation team. Yeah, Good point. It sounds like you've done this before. Make it make it sound make it sound like it's everyone else's idea. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it works make, well. Sure I've seen has, that has work. I've yeah. seen that work so well. You know, I've even I also yeah. love the uh, the technique of where you know you have the idea and you know where you want to, but you move into a room, you have a conversation, and then all of a sudden, someone um, has the idea that you're holding in your head, and you can give them ownership of it. It's. Uh, I've seen people do that very uh, cleverly over the years. Yeah, it's an art form to actually plant those ideas in someone else's head. <laughs> yeah. It's sort of covert activities. <laughs> yeah. I think in the military they call it psyops. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, it um, works. It does. Now, listen, um, you've developed the Masters in Branding program at the School of Visual Arts in, in New York City. You know, t- take me through that. You know, and what are the various elements in that particular master's program that you're trying to teach people? It's interesting. We're in our 10th year, which is kind of surprising to me that you know 10 years has gone by. But when we started 10 years ago, it was the first time you can get a master's degree in branding. And I was strangely invited to help be part of the founding faculty because I gave a talk once to a group of um, branding people at a conference. And 
part of my talk was pointing out the fact that branding is dead. <laughs> and what I meant by that, and you know, it got it didn't get the best review when I first said it, but I kind of, I, I, you know, I, I did what we just said. I kind of made him think it's their idea, you know. Um, but the reason branding's dead is because you know, at the time, it's not what it used to be. You know, companies and organizations used to be in charge of the media, and they could tell you anything they want. But now we are in charge of the media, so the brand is not what a company or organization says it is; it's what we say it is. So when you want to buy a product, for instance, you don't go to the company's website. You go to reviews or the Food Channel or blogs or influences. Or... So branding is really out of the hands of companies, and it's really in the hands of the people who are using or taking advantage of those services. And as a result, you really do need to be people-centric. You know, it's required. It's a it's a minimum requirement. And so, was that then, as you say, you were a founding member of the of uh, of the faculty and the design of this particular program. So, was that the idea that all of a sudden, hang on, let's let's accept that that's the, the you know the reality that technology has now uh, created this new reality, um, and people have enthusiastically yeah. adopted that. So, we now have to rethink the process because. We're no longer in control. Yes, and I'm I'm coming in it from left field with the thought, with a design background. I make the point that the product or the service is the brand. Now, the program is not a design program at all. It's it's really more like a masses. Uh, it's more like an MBA focused on brands. So the courses include the history of brands, the psychology of brands, business of brands. Uh, Etc. A lot of very interesting topics. It's not a design course. You don't need to be a designer to enter it. There's really no design going on within the course, as as you would think. But the um, the students who come out of it, oh boy, that it's it's like a revelation. It's a very intense program. It goes on for a year, and we may brand and focus on companies or products or things that are typical. But we also spend a lot of time looking at things like movements, like the Me Too movement or Black Lives Matter. That also, you know, those are also entities, right? And they qualify, at least in our description, uh, they qualify as brands. Mm. Uh, this year, That's... the thesis is coming up on the uh, 20th, actually. It's going to be online this time um, because we can't do it live in a theater like we normally do. But it um, uh, it's going to be broadcast, and we're focused on 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 the pandemic. What do we do now? Mm. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good to know. I'll be very interested to publicise that actually to our audience. I'm sure they'll be fascinated to see those insights. So, just just about that, um, and looking at at the movements like Me Too, like. Black Lives Matter. When you look at those through the lens of design, what do you see? And and you know how? What can we learn from that in terms of communication? When you look at, as I say, those those movements, lens of a of a design. What are the insights that you can that you take away that can then be applied more broadly? Well, it needs to very be a very strong message. Very often, it's a bottom up message when we're talking about movements. And it really takes understanding what the needs and the wants and desires of people are and positioning those movements appropriately. Now, sometimes it's not a 
organized movement in the way that you think a company or a you know, service would would be organized. Of course, you know they don't have a big building where they start a movement like that with people in, in different offices. But it does help to understand needs and desires of people and be very people focused and to have uh, a ton of empathy for the people who you're hoping will join that movement. And it's interesting, isn't it? And where does technology play now? Uh, and, and when I talk about technology, I mean really this, you know, and you, you sort of suggested it before around this, you know, the democratization of the, the factors of media production and distribution and the fact that every individual is essentially a potentially a media company they can you know they can create they can curate they can distribute you know video content audio content you know photography um, they can write blog you know like this is the massive change obviously in the way people behave and obviously the way that we engage with them how does that work into um, what you're um, you know teaching people about in terms of branding well, everyone is broadcasting, right? Like you're saying, everyone is a bro- is broadcasting. And what's interesting about the media that we're now consuming is that it is very focused. You know, it's very filtered, right? What we read is really based on what we want to read. Uh, so that's a little bit problematic. You know, we don't always get or people don't always get the full spectrum of thoughts or ideas or, or viewpoints, uh, I will say too, it's it's interesting how much news is conveyed through the internet or through social media. You know, it's interesting that all my friends on Facebook, who used to be experts in politics, suddenly became experts in the virus. Uh, not sure how they all made that transition, but they seem to have <laughs> made that transition pretty smoothly. Um, but you know, you I, I get a lot of news, n- not just from what people say, but I see a lot of people post things, post articles, and post videos, and post a lot of news. And I actually think it is uh, directed at me in a way because it is being filtered, or maybe I am controlling that filter so that I get to see the things that are more important to me. But I think what she's then suggesting, though, from a looking at from through the lens of a uh, communication, someone who wants to tell a story about a particular um, policy or a program or a service or a regulation. But I think what you're suggesting there is that um, you do have to create that content and you do have to be consistent and you do have to get it out into the world and you do have to spread it far and wide if indeed you want people um, to understand. But when you're creating that content, it needs to be uh informed by the you know the needs and wants and desires of those audiences that you're seeking to engage with. Yeah, exactly. And fortunately or probably unfortunately, there seems to be no shortage of topics to rally around. Mm. So, you know, there are plenty of movements to join or at least to, to agree with. So listen, just finally, I just want to ask you about accessibility and we did we did touch on it a little bit earlier, you know, that this notion of the spectrum um and making sure that we are, you know, paying uh, attention to the edges so as that we make sure that we're not leaving uh people out. Where and and obviously it's been a key, you know, at the at, at the forefront of a lot of your branding and research and innovation work. How how then do you think people can best 
incorporate that accessibility and that awareness around accessibility into the decisions that they make? You know, it's interesting. I'm finding that a lot, not a lot of people think about design. I was invited last year by Epicurious, which is an online magazine, food-based magazine, and they have a series of videos on YouTube. And they asked me if I would come in and critique some kitchen gadgets. And it was all very improvised and all very, you know, they, they found gadgets and they kind of sprung them on me. And we had a camera crew in a studio. And at this point, we've made eight videos and we have more than 15 million views. <laughs> in those videos, I critique these very odd kitchen gadgets that they find, like these things that slice watermelons or, you know, peel onions. Or something. You know, they spring these very odd things on me. And what I, what I talk about, well, first I try them, then I critique them. Then I come up instantaneously with ideas on how to make them better. And as I do that, I say, well, you know, this needs to be accessible. You know, people have slippery hands. People have weak hands. Lots of people have arthritis. You know, lots of people need to use their left hand and their right hand at the same time. Maybe they're not as coordinated. So I point out not just, you know, design flaws or maybe areas for design improvement, but I talk about accessibility, you know, designing for the spectrum. And the, from the comments that I've seen, I don't read them all, but from the comments I've seen, people don't think about it. Or maybe it's a revelation when I start talking about designing for the spectrum and thinking about everyone. So I, I get a lot of, of positive feedback. And you know, like I said, a crazy number of views on, on those YouTube videos. Yeah. But again, it's, it's, su it's such a simple concept, though, isn't it? Where you you're obviously taking the, um, you you're patient with your exploration and then thinking, okay, well, you know, as you say, weak hands, um, sweaty hands, strong hands, small hands, big hands, you know, there's everybody is in the kitchen using this device, and so it's how do you bring everybody into it and then work backwards from those those insights? So it actually doesn't surprise me that that's quite popular. People, yeah, you know, I, because they can probably see themselves, you know, someone probably goes, hey, no one, you know, I've got arthritis and no one ever talks about, you know, no one ever gives, you know, no one ever puts me into the picture. And, you know, when Dan looks at it, he's bringing everybody along for the ride. And accessibility is not just about people with a disability as such. It's really a much broad, it's, it's looking at people in, in a different way. Yeah, as part of those videos, I do this trick that I that I sometimes do when designing products is I'm right-handed. So I use my left hand yeah. to use the product and oil it up, soak it in oil or soap, make it super slippery. And if I could use this product with my left hand soaked in oil, um, <laughs> it, prob it probably works, right? And the shape is fine, right? The shape is, is fine. You know, the actions and the movements are fine. If it doesn't work, it really quickly highlights where things can be improved. And it's kind of become a, a sort of a theme throughout these Epicurious videos where I'm just doing the left-handed oil test um, <laughs> with basically everything I'm trying. And, you know, I guess it's entertaining because people are watching it and commenting on it. And you also yeah. get a lot of strange uh, 
and very odd sexual comments, which I won't go into, but it, it is, you know, people are watching it. But it is about accessibility. It is about challenging yourself. It is about putting, uh, you know, trying at the very most and putting yourself in other people's places. Now, in reality, you know, we would, you know, I would, I would find people who have dexterity problems or hand problems and actually talk to them. But as a, as a very quick, yeah. Uh, challenge to yourself it, it helps to to just challenge yourself and try it firsthand yeah and i think probably what i'm ta- again one of the key things i'm taking from from this discussion really is 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 that importance to to not rush you know that importance not to get to the answer quickly not to feel like you've got to to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing it's like well hang on if you just take a little bit more time be a little bit more curious be a little bit more inclusive you're likely to I design uh, an outcome which is going to be far more uh, useful and in the long run probably a, a more efficient way to the right outcome as opposed to that, you know, we're this hard driving, got to go, got to go, 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 go. You know, we've got to, you know, we're on the clock, so to speak. So, uh, yeah, that's interesting. I've, I've, that, that's how I feel, actually. As I'm listening to you, I'm sort of feeling like, and this is, you know, often for me, I feel like, okay, just keep, just slow down, slow down, you know, give yourself some time, let those ideas sit with you, let that, let it come. Um, it's there, but you've just got to be curious and patient um, and, and, and understand that, you know, the answer is there, but, you know, it might take a little bit longer to, to find it. Yeah, exactly. Trust yourself, you know, use that time wisely, even take some time off in the middle, even if you're under a deadline, you know. I often ask people where they get their best ideas, and it's never, never, never in a conference room. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. either in the shower or it's in it's in it's in the car when I'm driving alone. Yeah. So you know, t- take showers. <laughs> we'll do that. Okay, Dan. Thank you so much um, for being so generous with your time today. This is a you know, it's a slightly it's a different take uh, on the world that we live in in government communication. People who are designing program and policy, but the principles that you've outlined today are the principles that can be applied in that very field. And I think it's directly applicable to you know that observation, that deep empathy, that you know clear understanding, that inclusiveness, that curiosity. That's that really sits at the heart of great policy and uh, programs and, and solutions. So I think um, the audience will take a lot from it. I've got a couple of pages worth of notes here that I'm actually going to go out and transcribe uh, to put in my little file of, uh, of stuff I should read more often. And I'll go back and have a look at those Epicurious videos as well. And listen, where might f- people be able to connect with you um, to understand a little bit more and, and stay on, on the journey with you uh, at the 4B Collective? Oh, 4B, Dan at 4BCollective.com or simple one is Dan at DanFormosa.com. Just use my name. Um, I am accessible and findable, I think. Excellent. Well, I look forward to uh, people connecting with you. And uh, obviously, you are a very generous soul. And if people reach out, I'm sure you'd be happy to have a conversation with them. So to Dan Formosa, uh, a few short miles, uh, I think, north of uh, Manhattan. Enjoy. Stay safe. I hope your family stays safe in these challenging times. And to you, the audience, for you, please, wherever you are in the world, you stay safe. Um, 
And uh, thanks very much for coming along once again today. Fantastic conversation there with Dan. Really, what a fantastic insight there for us. And so much to think about as we go back to our work now. The idea of this podcast is to learn and to take things, but the, you have to apply them, okay? You can't just listen and do nothing with all of that information that Dan's just given you. That's not part of the deal. If you listen to this program and you pick this stuff up, you have to apply it. And then you have to tell us how this is improving the way that you are strengthening communities and improving the well-being of citizens around the world through effective communication. So thanks to you for coming back once again. Thanks to Dan Formosa and thanks to everyone. But I'll be back at the same time next week. But for the moment, it's bye for now. You've been listening to the GovComs podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to stay up to date with our latest episodes.